Father, thank you again for the gift of your word. Thank you for its truth that has resounded down the centuries. And we pray that you would speak to us tonight in this place. That you would speak life. That you would speak freedom. That you would speak truth into each of our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, during these summer months, we're going through different passages from the Bible, looking at different aspects of faith. And today, what we've been looking at is saving faith. And saving faith as evidenced in this particular story. This story of Paul and Silas, who as they go to this place called Philippi, are imprisoned, end up in prison for preaching about Jesus and delivering uh, a slave girl from demonization who had been taken over by an evil spirit. And they end up in prison. And eventually, as we'll see, the person who's in charge of the prison ends up coming to know Jesus for themselves. So I want to begin by asking you a question about what you think about prison. What comes into your mind when you think of the word prison? What images, what emotions come into your head when you think about a prison? Maybe you think of it as a place where criminals are held, a place of punishment. Maybe you think of it as a place where justice is meted out. Maybe it's a place some people cynically think that our society use prison to keep together the criminal class all in one place. Maybe it's a film or television program that comes to mind. Apparently in surveys that are done again and again and again of people's favorite film, the favorite film that comes out number one again and again and again is the Shawshank Redemption. If you've never watched it, I won't tell you what happens, but it is a great film with a twist. Incredible characters about people coming to terms with what it means to be in captivity, some of them unjustly, some of them wrongly. If you're of a certain vintage like me, probably when you think of prison, you think of the television series Porridge. Not the remake, but the original with Ronnie Barker, who was fantastic. And uh, Mr. Mackay, who was the sc Scottish, again, prison guard. Isn't that funny that it, the people went to Scots for that portrayal of dour strictness? Porridge was one of the great comedies um, in terms of timing. And just the writing was superb and the acting. Or perhaps, in reality, it's closer to home. When you think of prison, maybe you've been in prison. Maybe you know somebody who's in prison. Maybe you know somebody who at the moment is in prison. Maybe it's this prison, HMP Edinburgh. It used to be known as Sockton Jail. Now it's been given a whole new redesign on the front. Looks a bit like the Apple Store, which is rather worrying. Um, and called Her Majesty's Prison Edinburgh. There's a men's prison there and there's a women's prison there. And the people that I've talked to who've gone into prison, maybe on remand, maybe because they've been found guilty, they tell me that the first night in prison is horrendous. 
It's that noise. <laughs> it's that noise that is deeply, deeply sobering. Because when that door shuts of your cell, you suddenly realize that you are a prisoner. That you cannot open that door until a member of the prison service comes the next day and unlocks your door, or unless it automatically is released. I've talked to several people over the years, and that sound still haunts them. The sound of their freedom literally being shut away. So we have different responses to prison. A place of punishment, a place of justice, a place perhaps where bad people go, but a place also of deep trauma, where people who often lead very complicated lives, sometimes for their own fault, some of no fault of their own at all, end up in prison. Well, it's striking that the Bible looks at prisons slightly differently. The prisons feature regularly throughout Old and New Testament. The word prison occurs 46 times in the New Testament. And Bishop Graham Tomlin makes the point that it's striking that in the Bible, it's not just the bad guys who end up in prison. It's the good guys who end up in prison as well. So yes, there are people like Barabbas, and even Satan himself, the devil, is described as being in prison. But then there were people that we would think of as heroes of the faith. People like Joseph, Samson, John the Baptist, the Apostle Peter, one of the early church leaders of Paphras, and in tonight's passage, Paul and Silas. And Graham Tomlin goes on to say that if you think about it, even more remarkable than that is that God himself has been in prison. That in the person of Jesus Christ, God knows what it is to be in chains. God knows what it is to be put on trial. God knows what it is as Jesus was awaiting his execution at the hands of the Roman authorities, he knew what it was to be in prison. And Graham Tomlin says this is important because it's part of a theological idea called recapitulation. This idea that there is nothing outside of God's influence or ability to redeem and restore. That even though you end up in prison... God knows what it's like to be in prison. God knows what it's like to be a prisoner. God knows what it's like to be on trial. God knows what it's like to be executed. God knows what it's like to be on death row. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, that is what happened to God. If you talk to Josh uh, Gilbert, who's playing the bass tonight, um, Josh has worked for the last couple of years with Alpha Scotland, 
um, and just finished with them and did an amazing job. Now, um, in nine out of the 15 prisons in Scotland, the Alpha course is running. And what we're seeing is all across Scotland, people's lives are being changed across the world. The Alpha course is running in prisons everywhere. Remember two or three years ago, being at a conference down south and seeing about 40 prison officers who'd come over from an African country. And they were all running Alpha. God is able to use places like prisons to bring about change and transformation. A few years ago now, we invited this guy, Daryl Tunningley, uh, to come and tell his story. Daryl came from quite a violent background uh, in Yorkshire, and through one thing after another, he ended up in prison. And just for three or four minutes, I want to show you Daryl telling you his story of how Jesus met him in prison. I'm often asked, why did you begin crime crime? I say it wasn't a conscious decision in the career to be in the course of the army. It was just there. It was all around us. And it all started with the drinking cannabis stuff. We used to steal matches from expensive cars and swap them like trading cards. And it just progressed through the entire car. I got involved with the people who were really rolling all the strings. So we went up to this guy's house who owed them a few million pounds. It was nothing to them. But the problem was he'd been going around telling everybody that he wasn't being paid. So they had to send him down the So they got this guy, he was in his garden, his little lad was there. So he got out of the car, grabbed this bloke, put him in the car, sat between us, and he drove up to what was called Magnus Quarry and pulled the pebbles from out of the boot of the car, gave it to me to leave his feet, stripped his feet, just lacerated his feet. And this was my initiation. So that just went on and on and on. Cut a long story short. Leeds Crown Court, courtroom number three. He handed me down seven thousand years. And I just thought to myself, that's it. Gloves are off. If I'm going to be bad, I'm going to be the best kind of bad I can possibly be. Because I've got people from prison to prison to prison. Put on category eight maximum security because of my behaviour. And there's this lad another inmate comes up to me and he says, do you want to go on an alpha course? No idea no, what he was talking about. I said, look, get out of your face. I thought, no, I'm it. And the next thing, this kid's coming around, he's going to again. So I'm just waiting for this kid to get the slappy range. And he must have sensed something wasn't right. He's like, well, there's something out there. He went, yeah, when's it going to happen? Get free coffee, get free biscuits. All right, I'll see you on Wednesday. And we just start giving a hard time. Really hard time. The thing that stopped, it wasn't what he said, because I wasn't really listening but it was how they did it. They came back at me with love and compassion every single time. So I sat there and one of them said, the first real prayer I'd ever said in my life. I didn't know if it was going to be right or wrong. But the gist is, God, I need you to take away the anger, violence, the hate. I need you to take away the addiction, which I've tried to fight, but I just want every time. If you do that for me, I will live the rest of my life. The next morning, I woke up, I said, I always had to rolled over to grab this rock, I always had to 
could touch it. Everything about it, the thought, the smell, everything, everyone in the And I knew what I had to do, so I got my little stash and put it straight out of the And as soon as it was gone, I started to feel a bit better. I started to calm down a little bit. But I was still freaking out. It's just a sense of self now, calm down. Go get a watch, go shake. And as I started to get a little bit in the mirror, I just stopped it. Because I didn't recognise my own reflection. I was like, that guy's smiling. Not just smiling, but that guy's breathing. And I noticed that it just looked different. Different. Everything had gone. It was this somewhat of monstrous on top of my head. It was blood freezing from water and everything had just washed out. So the chaplain consulted the people, and I just told the boss of you, and he said, the man that went to bed last night, it's not the same man that's standing in this morning. You're in your creation. And that was it. I said, no more. No more fighting. No more drugs. No more nothing. If you owe me anything, forget it. If you're holding anything in mind, keep it. I don't want it when I'm done. I'm finished. Jesus has saved me. And then when it came time for my release, I knew it was going to be the time when Reverend Mindfield's JP Manuscript said, Would you consider this one called Dylan? We've got a new church plan just getting going. It's a big problem for people with gangs and drugs. Would you come? I knew it was right last time. So he picked me up at the gates on the morning of my release. Took me to his house, not the house, his home. And his eldest his daughter, Rebecca, who is now my wife and the mother to my two amazing children, Benjamin and Lydia Grace. Life just comes more different than what it is now. Parsis was broken through the cross. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free. Just a bit of Nicky Gamble at the end. So Daryl's life has been changed because he met Jesus in prison. Now, in the passage that we're looking at tonight, it wasn't a prisoner's life who was changed. It was actually the person in charge of the prison itself. And it reads a bit like a film plot or a thriller that you might read on a beach on holiday. Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, the author of Acts, arrive in this place called Philippi. It's an important city in the region. It's the center of trade. It was the site of the decisive battle in the Roman Civil War. It had been named after Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. And it was a Roman colony full of retired soldiers. It was a very rich and a very proud place. As Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke arrive in this city, they discover that there is no Jewish synagogue. There's no building where Jews will gather to worship. There's not enough of them because you need a certain number in order to form a synagogue. But there is a place of prayer. But even though there aren't that many Jews, as we'll see in a minute, the people in Philippi know enough about the Jews to be prejudiced against them. We're told that Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy go to a place of prayer by the Gangite River. And there they meet a woman called Lydia. Lydia is a wealthy businesswoman. We know that she's wealthy because she is trading in purple cloth. Purple cloth was the most expensive type of cloth. It was the most expensive dye. And therefore, it was 
It was the, the most valued uh, commodity in the, in the fabric trade. Um, that's why the magistrates in ancient Rome, or the emperor, wore purple. That's why bishops came to wear purple, because it was the most expensive cloth. Lydia is a phenomenal businesswoman. She's got all sorts of networks. She's got all sorts of trading links. She is also somebody who is deeply spiritual, but she's seeking. Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy sit down with Lydia and they start to explain about what they believe, about how they believe that all the promises about the Messiah have come true in this person called Jesus. And Lydia decides that Jesus is the Messiah. And Lydia and her whole household become followers of Jesus Christ. They're all baptized. They start to go into the town of Philippi. And as they go around Philippi, they're being followed by a slave girl. And the slave girl doesn't just follow them. The slave girl shouts after them. Now, at this stage, Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy perhaps are trying to keep a bit of a low profile. They're trying to sort of wrecky the joint. They're trying to see what the lie of the land is in Philippi. It doesn't really help their cause. It doesn't really help their case that this slave girl walks behind them shouting out. It's not actually the girl who's shouting out. It's the evil spirit that is inside this girl. Um, it's referred to as a, she's referred to as demonized or demon-possessed. Literally, she has the, uh, the spirit of a python. You can see where J.K. Rowling got her inspiration for Slytherin. He has a spirit of a python. And this spirit enables her to see the future and to see into people. She's clairvoyant. She's a fortune teller. She can see into people's lives. People will pay her to tell them their fortune. The evil spirit inside this slave girl starts to shout out as she walks behind Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy. And she shouts out, These people, these people are servants of the Most High. What she's saying is that of all the gods and goddesses, of all the deities that we worship, these guys, they're with the top God. They're with the Most High God. They're with the the God God. They're with the God of everything. They're with the God of the Most High. These are servants of the Most High, and they're telling you the way of salvation. And she shouts it out. It doesn't really help Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy, who are trying to keep a low profile. She's shouting out, she's shouting out, she's shouting out. Eventually, in perhaps not the most compassionate form of Christian ministry, Paul completely loses it. And he turns around and in anger says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of it. He's just sort of fed up with this girl who's just shouting after them, blowing their cover, blowing their cover, blowing their cover. So he turns around and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out. And immediately the evil spirit who knows who these men are. Just in the same way that the evil spirits knew who Jesus was, the evil spirit leaves this girl. Luke tells us immediately that also, not just did the evil spirit 
disappear, but also the income stream for her owners disappeared. And Luke deliberately uses the same word to say exit demon, exit income stream. And they're not very happy. It's a fascinating account of when someone is delivered. It reminds me of, um, you may have heard of the evangelist J. John, tremendous preacher. Um, I used to work with him 20 odd years ago. He's a, a small Greek Cypriot, um, phenomenal communicator of the gospel, but he tells a story against himself. He was um, preaching um, down in Brighton uh, about 10, 15 years ago, and he, he was being heckled uh, during his preach. And again, John, who is a Greek Cypriot, Mediterranean, certain type of personality and temperament, just lost it. And John said, because he speaks like that, he's very high-pitched and very sort of like that. And he just said, I just looked at this man and I said, you'll go blind. And he said, as soon as I said it, I thought I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) By the time he'd driven from Brighton to Nottingham, there was a journalist waiting on his doorstep saying, is your name J. John? He said, maybe. He said, did you tell a man in Brighton that he would go blind? Maybe. He hasn't. Good. Sometimes things happen. Sometimes things happen maybe all, but not for the right reason. This girl is delivered because Paul is angry. Also, what the girl is shouting is interesting because she says, Not just these are servants of the Most High, but they're telling you the way of salvation. Now, because we've lived with 2,000 years of Christianity, we hear a word like salvation, or even the question that the jailer asks that we'll see in a few minutes, what must I do to be saved? And we think, well, that's Christian. How has this Christian language appeared? That's not what was meant by the way of salvation. Rome promised salvation. Rome basically said, you come to us, you become part of the Roman Empire, and we will give you salvation. Now, what Rome meant by salvation wasn't life after death, wasn't eternal life, wasn't forgiveness of sins. What they meant by salvation was, you will have economic prosperity. You won't have any wars. You won't have civil disobedience. There'll be no unrest in the streets. You will be at peace. You will be at rest. You will have salvation because we will look after you. And that's perhaps what people thought when they heard this servant girl shouting and saying, they are telling you the way of salvation. But the slave girl is delivered. Her owners are furious. The evil spirit is gone, but so has their income stream. And so Luke tells us that they drag Paul and Silas, note Luke and Timothy, disappear from the story at this point. So Paul and Silas are dragged in front of the magistrates. Luke and Timothy just disappear into the crowd. They just melt into the background. We'll just watch. And Luke tells us that he and Timothy Watch as Paul and Silas are dragged in front of the magistrates. They're dragged into what's called the marketplace, the agora. It'd be the equivalent of of the area outside St. Giles on the High Street on the Royal Mile, a place where all the the fringe performers, um, they perform. And that's the place where everyone's gathered and in front of everybody, in front of the whole town, in front of the whole city, these two preachers are charged 
with offering an alternative way of salvation. But that's not actually initially what they're charged with. They're charged with these, well, they're referred to as these Jews. Words, again, that have been used over the centuries. Still being used even today in politics. These Jews. And the contrast that's presented is us Romans. These Jews are stirring up trouble. Us Romans, we've got to look after each other. See, what was an economic problem became a spiritual problem and then became a racial problem. And that's why Paul and Silas find themselves plonked into prison. It's not the first time. Maybe it's the first time that Paul's ended up in prison, but it certainly won't be the last. And as I say, to go into prison for the first time is sobering for most people. Well, it is for most people, but apparently not for Paul and Silas. Because Luke tells us, perhaps he discovers later what went on, Paul and Silas start to do something rather unusual in prison. And if we're honest, probably something that wasn't very popular with their fellow prisoners. Because Luke tells us that they start to pray and they start to sing hymns to God. And if you look in the account, Luke says, and the other prisoners were listening. Brackets, they had no choice. So Paul and Silas are in chains. They're singing away. We don't know what they sang. We don't know what came out of them. Maybe it was something like Psalm 40 which speaks about out of the, the miry pit, you lifted me, I waited patiently for you. They, speak, uh, they sing songs of deliverance that from their Jewish background perhaps they knew, things like Psalm 40. Interesting to, to speculate on what happens to people when they're in times of stress. If you were in a situation like that, how would you react? If you were in a situation, what would come out of you? I always remember somebody who mentored me, somebody who used to be the minister at Charlotte Chapel um, when it was in Rose Street, Alan Redpath. And in the last few uh, months of his life, um, Alan had had several strokes and he was incapacitated. He was in hospital. And he used to lie in bed. And in the middle of the night, what would come out were old sermons. And he'd start to preach. It'd be two, three, four o'clock in the morning. There'd be wards of people listening to Alan preach sermons from 20, 30 years ago. And just like the prisoners in Philippi, they had no choice. To make it even worse, what happened was that when Alan started to preach at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, there was a, a, an Afro-Caribbean uh, patient opposite who would shout out, Preach it, brother! And would sort of get him going. And I remember thinking, I was about 28, I wonder what would happen to me in 40, 50, 60 years' time when I end up in a hospital bed, when I end up in an old people's home, when I end up perhaps completely incapacitated, what will come out of me? Would it be old sermons? Would it be old prayers? 
Would it be old worship songs? Would it be old hymns? One of the sobering things is that when you're around people in an old people's home, you see often what comes out is what's left or what's most important. You see people who are angry. You see people who are bitter. But also you see people for whom faith is still important. And when you push them, what comes out is that faith. That's what happens to Paul and Silas. They start to sing. They start to pray. And we're told the other prisoners were listening to them. And then comes the plot of the next Mission Impossible film. There's a huge earthquake. The doors of the prison fly open. The jailer wakes up. He's terrified, either because the prisoners have escaped, punishable by death, or because the gods have sent an earthquake and he's scared stiff. Either way, he decides to fall on his own sword, literally. He's about to kill himself. Paul realizes what's going on and shouts out, it's okay, we're still here. Even though all the doors are open, even though the chains have come off the prisoners, even though they could have walked free, they haven't walked free. And the jailer's response is to come and say, what must I do to be saved? Now again, what was the jailer asking? Was he asking, how can I become a Christian? How can I know Jesus Christ personally as my Lord and Savior? No, he wasn't asking that. Was he asking, how can my sins be forgiven? No, he wasn't asking that. When he was asking, what must I do to be saved? Literally, he was saying, what can I do to get out of this mess? But Paul's answer is the same. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul and Silas are taken by the jailer into his own home. They speak to him for about an hour. And after an hour, he decides to become a Christ follower. And he and his whole household are baptized. And there's this lovely picture of mutual washing where, first of all, the jailer takes water and washes the wounds of Paul and Silas because they've been whipped, they've been flogged, they've been beaten. And he bathes them. And then with the same water, Paul and Silas baptize the jailer and his family. It's an amazing story. And Philippi, perhaps one of the first European churches, begins. Fascinatingly, straight away, they eat together. It's one of the things that Jesus did again and again. One of the signs of the early Christian community was that they ate together. And what do we learn? Well, perhaps two things quickly. Firstly, that we have this thing called the church. This thing that is unlike any other institution, organization, group of people that has existed or will exist. Because if you think about what and who is in this Philippian church, you've got Lydia, who is an Asian businesswoman, quite wealthy. You've got a slave girl who's probably Greek and destitute and poor. And you've got an ex-Roman soldier and his family. An Asian businesswoman, a Greek slave girl, 
and an ex-Roman soldier and his family. There is no other organization, community, group of people like the church. When the church is being the church, it will always be diverse when it's being authentic. Beware of people who will offer you a church just for people like you. It's very appealing in our society, very appealing in our culture. Come to church and meet people just like you. That's not actually a biblical picture of church. Church is people drawn from every race and nation and tribe and tongue and language different socioeconomic classes, all brought together in one place. Think of somebody right at the heart of this church who's really, really important. He's just gone into hospital called Ray. And uh, for years, Ray did a Bible study with a guy called James. And two people from more different backgrounds you could not wish to meet. Ray comes from Leith. Ray has a colourful history. Ray has been into several prisons, mostly not voluntarily. He has gone back in as well as visiting and to do Alpha, but Ray has a history. James comes from a very, very different background. James's company looked after most of the landed estates in Scotland, if not the north of England. James is of the hunt and shoot and fishing variety. Ray probably wouldn't fit into that circle. But for about 15, 20 years, they've been friends. They've done Bible study. They've prayed together. And I remember looking at the two of them once and thinking, only in the church, only in the church would Ray have met James and become friends. So that's what the church is. The second thing is that God does use difficult circumstances. Paul and Silas were in prison. Paul and Silas decided to respond by praying and trusting in God. And we're left with that question, if you and I were pushed, if you and I were put in some extreme circumstance, how would we respond? What would come out of us? It strikes me that what was interesting that for Paul and Silas, even though they were praying, even though they were singing, even though they were worshipping, they didn't actually pray for deliverance. It's more than likely that what they were doing was praying for strength in a particular situation rather than rescue from a particular situation. And if we're honest, when you and I get into difficulties, the one thing that you and I are most likely to do is pray for rescue from a particular situation. Paul and Silas don't do that. They pray for strength in the situation. Paradoxically, God does bring rescue and deliverance from that situation, but that is not their first response. Their first response is to pray for strength in the situation. And I find it striking that 
that Paul writes this verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And elsewhere in that letter, he talks about being content in every situation, that he's learned to be content. And which church is he writing to? He's writing to the church in Philippi. He's writing to the church that remembers that time, that evening, that night, when Paul and Silas were in prison and they worshipped and they prayed and they asked God for strength in the situation, not rescue from the situation. So for you and for me this evening, maybe you're in a tough situation now. Are you praying for strength in or rescue from? Maybe it's right that you pray for rescue from, but maybe it's right perhaps that you could be a more powerful witness. You could point people to Jesus if you prayed for strength in the situation rather than rescue from the situation. Paul wrote to that church in Philippi, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Have you learned to be content in every circumstance? Paul said, I've learned that. And the place that he learned that was a Philippian prison, Libby.